Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community. A number of founding teams that have met in there. A number of nonprofits that have been established a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today, we're doing things a bit differently and are featuring guests from two different companies at once. Mary Yap, co-founder and CEO at Lithos Carbon, and Adam Wolf, co-founder and CEO at Ion Carbon. That's spelled E-I-O-N, Carbon. Both of their companies work in the space of enhanced rock weathering, a subset of carbon removal that seeks to speed up the planet's natural carbon cycle wherein rain absorbs CO2 from the atmosphere, falls onto and weathers rocks, and in doing so, creates a bicarbonate solution that eventually finds its way into the ocean for permanent carbon sequestration. Also, you might notice that I'm not Jason. This is Cody Sims, Jason's partner at MCJ. I did today's interview with Mary and Adam, and you'll hear me take on episodes here and there going forward. For all the talk of engineered carbon capture solutions, rock weathering is about as natural as you can get. It's the foundation of the Earth's long carbon cycle, and it also takes place over millions of years, so a bit longer than we need right now. I was therefore really interested to understand what it means to enhance this process and speed it up such that it can be a viable carbon sink in the decade-scale time frame we need to address climate change. Mary, Adam, and I have a great discussion about the long carbon cycle itself, the different types of rock found on Earth, how agriculture uses mineral inputs today, and how this would change with enhanced rock weathering, and some of the underlying economics of this method as a carbon removal technology. I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. Mary, Adam, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks so much for having us. Well, this is going to be a unique episode, having two founders of two different companies here. And what I'm really excited to do is to explore the space broadly of enhanced rock weathering and to understand it as a carbon removal solution. And then to make sure we also understand the unique approaches that each of you are taking to the space. So maybe let's start before we even get into enhanced rock weathering. 
let's understand what I've heard described as the long carbon cycle. Basically, like without humans here, without, you know, any climate tech at all, like what happens in the atmosphere from a rain, rock, carbon storage perspective and that as far as I understand, is actually one of the things that makes Earth a planet that can have stable temperatures that allows people to live on. Yeah, in fact, there's a book almost by that exact title by Wally Broker called How to Build a Habitable Planet. Love this book. You have to start with elements and, you know, the planet needs to form. But there's this whole interesting section that, for me, is what makes Earth science so, like, endlessly fascinating where there's kind of a thermostat where the mountain, let's say the Indian subcontinent hits Asia, the Himalayas rise, and of course they start to erode. And that reaction brings the CO2 in the atmosphere down. And what makes it a thermostat is when it's warmer, when there's more CO2 in the atmosphere, it goes faster, bringing it back down. If it gets cooler, CO2 accumulates and it slows down. And so we have the CO2 in the air that we have now relatively low because of this kind of mountain rock cycle that's happened over the last four and a half billion years. And Adam, the cycle you're talking about is geologic time scale. So we're talking about the rise and fall of ice ages here. Is that is that correct? No, no, no. Beyond ice ages, I'm talking about like Cretaceous. Let's go back to, you know, at the start, of the Cretaceous, let's say 65 million years ago, dinosaurs just died. And at that time, Paleocene, it was super high CO2. And that was around the era when, you know, the Himalayas are forming. If you're a real geologist, correct me here, but that was the era when the formation of these mountains from the continental collisions started bringing CO2 down until by the time around 2 million years ago when the, the quaternary begins. That is when we're kind of at this, you know, low, cool climate that predates the ice ages. So even between, you know, 65 million years ago and 2 million years ago, that's when we're talking about, and just, I'll shut up in a second, but the, the CO2 that we're emitting into the atmosphere is taking us back into, like, these prehistoric, pre-human, you know, before so many even grasses evolved in that time, you know? So it's so non-analogous. And Mary, maybe, you know, describe the the weathering patterns that happen with rock in terms of, you know, my understanding is, you know, we think of acid rain as a bad thing, but rain is actually kind of naturally acidic and that ends up creating this, this sort of rock phenomenon that ultimately drives carbon into the ocean, as far as I understand it. Walk me through what that actually looks like. Yeah, so this is actually a really amazing thing to realize. So this process that Adam and I and other, you know, intense weathering companies are looking at, this process already exists in nature. And it removes about half a billion to one billion tons of CO2 from the atmosphere every year using the power of what you're talking about, Cody, this acid rain. So in essence, what happens is the CO2 that's circulating around the globe combines with rain in the clouds, forms acid rain. We think of that as a really bad thing, but it actually has this kind of thermostatic way of 
modulating climate. So when that hits silicate rocks, which is you know what most rocks on Earth are made out of, leads to a chemical reaction by which that CO2 and that acid rain converted to a solid bicarbonate. That stuff is very hard to reverse. That is now geologically stored. Eventually goes into the ocean, falls to the bottom, becomes solid rock. And without this process on Earth, we would look a lot like Venus. Like this is one of the only reasons Earth is actually habitable today, and that's critical to realize. When I did my research in geology and in climatary sciences at Yale, like I actually built hydrological models of Titan, like in the only other, you know, body in the solar system that actually has a hydrologic cycle. And so the fact that we've got rain that combines with the CO two removes that crap from the atmosphere. Is absolutely critical to life on Earth, and that's the process we're inspired by. And Venus is something like ninety-six percent CO two in their atmosphere. Is that right? Somewhere in that ballpark. Exactly. And so, something that's really interesting here, actually, is that you know, folks don't realize this, but you know, when the Earth first formed, it didn't really have an atmosphere. We need the atmosphere, right? Like, you know, we're not going to live on the moon. We're not going to live on Mars without, you know, an atmosphere or some way of having oxygen. But the volcanoes are actually what created that atmosphere. They off-gassed all this stuff. And so, a question I like to ask my friends is like, have you ever wondered if a volcano is adding all the CO two to that atmosphere? Like, why hasn't it just, you know, continued to get super hot like Venus? You know, and also we're adding fossil fuel, you know, emissions all the time. Like, why hasn't it gone super hot? This is the answer: rock weathering, and it's really powerful. So, combining what you said and, and what Adam said at the start, what I'm hearing is you've had this very volcanic environment, dinosaurs, etc., created a high CO two concentration. Because our atmosphere has the ability to have rain and a hydraulic system, then we had this this also earth crust phenomenon where the Himalayas were formed. It created a bunch of mountains that created more exposure to rocks across the surface of the land combined with this more acidic CO2 heavy rain ultimately then modulated the CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere back down to a more oxygen-rich environment, which ultimately cooled the earth by also allowing more heat to escape from the planetary confines of our atmosphere. Am I following at this point? I want to highlight something Mary said also, which is when you start looking at other planets in the solar system, you realize how special this earth is and how many other different ways things could have gone that wouldn't even leave us with the world we have. And when you start looking at Titan or Venus or Mars, you think like, holy smokes, this is kind of precious to have our Earth. And I honestly feel like even more kind of motivated to do what it takes to preserve the kind of biodiversity and what we have. I know there's like, Certainly a group of people who are contemplating like leaving the earth and happening other places. And for me, I just think like, no, 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 this is like a once in a billion planet we have here. 100% there. So just to make sure I continue to understand the phenomenon. So this rain hits rocks. It creates a reaction with rocks that ultimately turns it into essentially a bicarbonate. I don't know what that is. So maybe you can explain what a bicarbonate is which then ultimately either leaches through the soil or ends up in our water systems, goes into the ocean, and then this bicarbonate over thousands or millions of years turns into animal shells and things like that that ultimately settles as limestone in the Earth's crust. And that's where the carbon is actually ultimately sequestered permanently, mostly down at the bottom layer of the ocean. Am I, am I, am I again still following the thread here? 
I don't even think you're a real journalist because you have it so accurately. Yeah. <laughs> the, the power, the power of Google before an interview is helpful. Precisely. Yeah. No, that was that was perfect, Cody. I think there are obviously nuances. Those are the nuances that Adam and I work on at Lithos and at Ion. Like we have to work with the nuances of like how does it get transported? How do we measure that? Like how do we make sure leakage and reversal isn't happening? Is this safe? Those are the questions we need to solve for. But yes, precisely. Like scientists and geologists have studied this for such a long long time we do know that that exact process you can like literally anyone the farmers we work with can go google they can figure this out there are papers and then it's the nuances that we are really trying to develop here and deploy as technology there's two kind of distinctions that mary i'm sure you find yourself making to people when you talk about it in agriculture people are used to thinking about soil organic carbon and we have to clarify that there's another kind of carbon, which is inorganic carbon. As well, this bicarbonate, it's dissolved. It's in solution, where historically, a lot of the work supported by the Department of Energy, and we've seen De Beers and others work on injecting CO2 into mountains, it's a solid, it's a rock. And so this is this kind of new category that you know, hasn't had, you know, a lot of historical research into it outside of the earth sciences where it's kind of a core phenomenon, but underappreciated as a carbon solution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, precisely. And it's not escapable. Like a key thing since Adam opened up sort of the can of worms that is soil organic carbon, that stuff can escape. So what we are doing is durable. It's permanent. It's becoming solid rock just in the same way that the Earth system has done this for billions of years. And that's the critical reason that this is equivalent to DAC, equivalent to the stuff that is building big machines to suck it out of the atmosphere and store this rock. Like this is that, but in some ways, very, very much more scalable. Well, we're going to dive all into, you know, how it's measured, how it compares to other forms of agricultural carbon storage and capture, et cetera. But I want to, I want to stay on the, the top level thread just to make sure we, we understand the, the broader phenomenon first. And so... The natural carbon cycle, without humans inter intervening and essentially pursuing new methods of carbon capture, we obviously know we're at a, a high point in, at least in human lifetime, of CO2 concentration of over 420 parts per million right now. How long would it take this long carbon cycle to clear out human-contributed CO2? Are we talking thousands of years if it were just to naturally happen? If we stopped emitting everything today, would this natural long carbon cycle clear out the, the CO2 in the atmosphere over 5,000 years, over 100,000 years, over 300 years? Like what, what's the, do we have, we have a sense of the broad scale of its effectiveness? I love napkin math. <laughs> yeah, I, that's what I'm trying to do. I think we're in the vicinity of having added a trillion tons of CO2 to the atmosphere, so a thousand gigatons. And I believe, and Mary, please correct me if I'm wrong, that natural rock weathering removes about one gigaton a year. Precisely. So yeah, it's one gigaton. Like a thousand year time frame. There are also some really weird fluxes that can happen, Cody. So as stuff comes out of the atmosphere, biological systems of things don't re-equilibrate the right way, then start to react in a weird way. So those are some of the weird questions that I would also ask. You know, it would be awesome if we stopped emitting immediately. 
but then how does everything else react? So those are always questions. Like when you when you mess with ocean systems, when you mess with soil systems, weird things start to re-equilibrate. But yeah, like I think if there is a trillion tons in the atmosphere that we've added, then that would take at least a thousand years to remove. Well, we don't have a thousand years. So let's maybe dive into the solutions that you each are pursuing. So my understanding of enhanced rock weathering is it does a lot of what we just talked about in the natural carbon cycle, but you're taking crushed forms of, of silicate rock and finally spreading it out over agricultural land, or there are some solutions that spread it out over the ocean, et cetera. We can talk about some of those differences, but ultimately by creating it crushed, you're increasing the surface area and you're speeding up the natural process that we talked about. Is that a high level understanding of, of what you're pursuing? Yep. So what I like to say is, you know, like carbon capture is like, you know, 90% chemistry, right? It's 90% chemistry and climate conditions. So yes, in theory, that is how it works, Cody. It's kind of like, you know, when I try to bake, I know what goes into the bread, but I've never really had sourdough come out perfectly for me, right? And so that's kind of where we come from, right? Like we have to take a high tech approach to actually making that theoretical idea of spreading crushed up silicon rocks in different settings. We need to figure out how to actually make that happen and highly engineer that. So, but yes, that is, that is the baseline that we're working from. And what are the different rock? I see I mean, just a baseline on different types of rock. And, you know, those of us who are going back to our geology classes in, in college, maybe, you know, you've got silicate, you've got basalt, you've got olivine, you've got serpentine. Can someone give me a, a definition of each of those different types of rocks? All of those are silicates that you described, but then we've got our carbonate rocks and you can think of silicates are mountains, but carbonates are under the ocean. And so where limestone comes from now, and you know, if you live in Illinois, that is sort of a barren seabed that evaporated. And I'll pass the mic in a moment, but one of the contrasts to make is that that calcium carbonate or dolomite or that is used as ag lime has a bunch of carbon in it. And when it's applied to soils, that carbon is ancient carbon that is now available to go back into the atmosphere. And a silicate could be a calcium silicate, magnesium silicate. That doesn't have that carbon. And I'll pass it to Mary to take the next step on rocks. Yeah, so there's a lot of different rocks here that we can use for our process. And like Adam said, we focus on silicate rocks. So our team at Lithos Carbon, we use basalt. It's a volcanic mineral. One of the things it's got going for it is it's one of the most common volcanic minerals on Earth. Like if you think about Hawaii or Iceland, that black rock you see, the sand, like the mountains, that's basalt. It's actually really common. And in some ways, that's really great for scaling this technology, right? And so basalt is a really great silicon rock for a few reasons. One, it's very, very low on metals. Like it's not going to cause harm to fields, you know, where people are growing the things that we're eating every single day. But the other thing that we absolutely love is that it actually is packed with micronutrients. So it has potassium, it has phosphorus, it has calcium, magnesium, molybdenum, all these different things that our farmers at Lithos across, you know, different parts of the states, their soils are being stripped, you know, and something really important to realize with farming, it's not just like perennials grow in your soil and like, and they do this every year. You actually have to bring things in to your farm 
then bring the food away. And that is stripping all that good stuff from the soils. So when we bring basalt, crushed up basalt rock to our farms, we're actually adding nutrients to those soils, helping regenerate that soil, helping with actually soil density and structure. And there's just a whole series of co-benefits that are really fantastic for the farm. So basalt is great, packed with micronutrients, really good for soil regeneration, which I can talk about. Topsoil is actually a huge issue America and the world is facing today in terms of growing crops. And then, like Adam said, it replaces limestone. Limestone is net carbon positive. It releases 40% is the number, 40% of its weight back into the atmosphere as CO2. And the government subsidizes that today. So Adam is in DC. I don't know if he's talking about limestone to folks, but maybe he should be because yeah, it's subsidized by the government. And that's totally understandable, right? Like we need the limestone to deacidify these fields so farmers can grow their food, but there is a better way. So our basalt, the way we engineer it, can actually replace the limestone, bring these co-benefits and soak up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So what I'm hearing you both say is basalt is this form of silicate rock that actually comes from mountains and has been pushed up from the earth. Limestone is the rock that has already gone through this natural weathering process and mostly comes from the bottom of the ocean where it's already been heavily CO2 absorbed. So Basalt doesn't have a lot of CO, a lot of carbon, excuse me, in it. Limestone is is heavy carbon. And in the Midwest today, I grew up in Kansas, so very familiar with how prevalent limestone is. University of Kansas has beautiful limestone buildings all over the place. In the Midwest, lime has been used as a fertilizer, I assume because of its prevalence as a mineral in the the general agricultural region of the U.S. Is that is that why lime itself has become a primary fertilizer um, and soil amendment? Yeah. So, Cody, so the limestone is it can come from different things, but it is primarily, you know, like the shells of oysters, corals, different things that, you know, precipitate calcium carbonate that's in the surface oceans, brings that into their shells, they die, fall in the farm you know, gets compacted, becomes limestone. And so one very common, you know, like the stuff from the bottom of the ocean over millions of years, it uplifts and then is exposed. So there's tons of that stuff all around, especially in the Midwest. But there are actually places in America that have a dearth of limestone, like the Pacific Northwest, there's limestone there, but because farms are fragmented, they have a hard time getting their hands without limestone. So yes, one of the reasons is the prevalence, but there's actually another factor of limestone that farmers, the make farmers like it so much today. And it's because it's really reliable and really easy and understandable to use. So limestone is actually pretty consistent from what we've done. We've done some tests in the lab. Limestone all across America, all across the world, it's very soft. You know, like think about like, I, you probably like scratch the wall of like a limestone, but it's like very, very soft. And so it dissolves very immediately in the fields. It's very reliable and can create that pH buffering to neutralize your soils really quickly. Some farmers even spread it like at weird little moments in the season. So that it just keeps doing a little buffering thing like every few weeks, right? And so because it's so reliable, it's so homogenous across the states, that's another reason it's so easy for farmers to use. One of the challenges we have with our technology, both the rock type that Adam is using, the rock type that we are using, is that basalt is a lot harder, you know, and also every single basalt source that our team uses, it's actually different. The mineralogy, the capture potentials, the buffering capacity, different for the farmer. So a farmer can't just roll up and apply this willy-nilly and be like, I hope this works. He's running a small business. He can't afford to do that. And so we need to do a lot of different things to optimize the deployment of that to make it safe, profitable for farmers, and also make it do what, you know, just like baking, theoretically, it should capture carbon. Yeah, I think about, you know, farming obviously operates in seasonal cycles. And, you know, imagine 
remove yourself from agriculture, remove your, you know, imagine you're running a manufacturing plant and you're only producing a product once a year, you're probably not going to mess with your manufacturing process all that often. And so I, I think about the same way from a food production standpoint. So we talked a bit about the benefits of limestone and why farmers use it today. What are the drawbacks of applying lime onto agricultural land that, you know, farmers and others that we're discovering through science are causing problems to whether it's topsoil or whether it's to water or other things? I don't know. Lime is, I think of agriculture as a profession where, you know, one person out of a hundred does it and 99 people have an opinion on how they do it. So there's probably not any production practice or input that doesn't have some opinion attached to it. Think about GMO seeds or fertilizers or whatnot. Lime, nobody doesn't like lime. Lime is like the least controversial of all ag inputs. And so when you think about, you know, is there downsides to lime? I would say aside from this phenomenon where it's a slight CO2 emitter, it's just so common and ubiquitous that you'll be hard pressed to find people that have complaints. There are, you know, places where people can't get it economically. It's heavy. And if you grow up in the South, there's like historically not a lot of, and when I say historically, I mean like geological historically, there's not a lot of limestone there. But in other ways, it is the status quo. There's just maybe arguably not enough of it. So I think that along those lines, like what Adam said is so right, limestone is not a controversial thing. People have been doing this for hundreds of years. You can find like fun papers online that I dug into at some point about this. There are a few issues with lime, but they're more like logistical ones. But you know, when it comes to running a business as a small farmer, you know, like that, that is what it comes down to. So one, there are certain regions where it's very hard to get your hands on it. There's a line from a farmer that we're working with where she was like, if it's not a hurricane down in the South, you know, it's not hurricaning today. That's a good day to spread lime. Unfortunately, I can't find the line, you know, and she hasn't been able to get it for freaking years. And that's really, really rough as a farmer, right? And then for those who do get it, it's very expensive. So it's rising in prices partially because of fuel and also just supply chains are wild right now. So some of our farmers actually do spend as much as a few hundred dollars an acre on that limestone. And that's a significant cost because if you don't put that in, none of the other nutrients you're adding to the soil can be uptaken by the plants. But if you, if you have to do that, it's, it's just very, very expensive. So that's actually one of the problems. And if you think about, you know, if you think about systems of supply and demand, the fact that there are these stockpiles of basalt or other rocks that can be used, or even some folks are looking at demolition concrete, Cody, so like that might be something interesting for y'all to dive into. There are these supplies of this stuff across the world near agricultural settings that can actually help supplant the dearth of limestone in some areas and actually make this very economically efficient. So yeah, that's, that's one of the things. Another thing is actually, it's always another thing to spread, right? So limestone, it doesn't do much apart from buffer your pH, absolutely critical. And it adds some calcium, especially dolomitic lime. So that can be helpful. However, you know, it takes you time, energy, and money to go across your field with that spreader and get that stuff into the soil. The cool thing is that some of these other sources, whether it's a demolition concrete or basalt, which is what we use, it adds the other stuff as well. So if you can have 
not even a product, but kind of a product that's kind of in some ways all in one, replaces the limestone, replaces a lot of the P and K, like we're doing studies on that today, replaces a lot of the nutrients folks need and actually helps with pest resistance, which is like a wild new thing we're just getting into today. That actually helps with the logistics on the farm, the cost of the spreading, the diesel that goes into the spreader, and it can make your life easier. I was just meeting with some peanut farmers. They were asking me, can I just like use this and mix it with some gypsum and use that instead of the limestone and the five other things? And I was like, yeah. So I'm hearing, you know, the, the transition that farmers may make from lime to basalt is, is more of a vitamin than a painkiller, right? Like they don't have a ton of issues with lime today. There are some depending on where you are, but for the most part, you're advocating that basalt will provide more benefits for them above and beyond the lime that they use today. Is that correct? Look, like if you understand how the structure of agriculture, who are the giants of agriculture? These are giants of chemistry. These are giants of genetics. These are giants of fertilizer. And these are the Cargills and Monsantos of the world, yes? Well, Cargill's a grain broker, so they're not an input company. But let's look at, you know, Syngenta, BASF, Yara, Bayer, you know, whatnot. There have been just immense efforts among all these companies to try to raise yields. And, you know, a lot of this is in the U.S., but a lot of it's overseas. Think, you know, Brazil and whatnot. And ultimately, they hit a wall because the efficacy of improved genetics or the efficacy of nutrients is blocked by acidic soils. It's just that there's no IP attached to limestone. And so here we've come to see that it's this almost my partner makes the analogy with rural broadband. It's an amendment that makes everybody else act better, but historically there's been no incentive to act as a group. There's no Lime Trade Association representative here in like Washington, DC. And so I think, you know, Mary, you may have discovered the same thing, that there's a lot of limitations around acidity that unlock other opportunities and the kind of adjacent inputs in agriculture. Yeah, precisely. And Cody, just to, to add another thing um, to what Adam said, I think that it actually is a painkiller. So when we talk to our farmers, they're not like, oh, cool, like, you know, like this has some carbon benefits. Like our approach to the market is actually kind of like a Tesla approach. So let's take a step back here. So like Tesla is trying to build a car that regardless of the climate benefit, you're going to want because it's so freaking fun to drive a Tesla. It accelerates so fast, right? It's a great product regardless of the climate benefits. And honestly, I think that's a very novel and smart approach to the market. So what we are trying to do at Lithos is we're trying to build something that's so good for farmers that ignore all the carbon stuff, ignore that this is a silicon mineral, ignore that this is inspired by nature's you know, own thermostat, ignore all of that. If this is something that's a painkiller for farmers because it solves the limestone problem, it solves the volatility in the price of agricultural inputs like P and K today, solves the spreading problem and then helps resistance with pests and improves crop yields, like that's something the farmers want. And so the most obvious thing actually out of the gate that's a painkiller for them is these farmers do spend hundreds of dollars on the limestone today. And at the moment, we're actually completely able to replace that for them, you know, without a cost, simply because we are doing all these other co-benefits, including the carbon capture, and that pays for itself. 
And so in some ways, that's a really big benefit for the farmer. You're getting something that at our side, we can guarantee crop yields for farmers. They know that this is safe. It looks like a rock dust. So it's not like a magical pixie powder that like, you know, someone weird is trying to sell to them. And so that way, it really is a painkiller, Cody. Like it's, it's solving the problems they have, their bottom line, their crop yields, pest resistance. It's doing it all in one without any weird risk, like not a weird biological fertilizer. It's a rock dust. And help me understand, you know, you mentioned two things that I want to dive into. One, you said, you know, a lot of basalt comes from volcanic islands, you know, Hawaii, et cetera. Two is that it's hard, whereas limestone is soft. So I'm assuming, A, we talked about limestone naturally lives in the Midwest. B, it's soft, so it's easy to crush in order to spread. Basalt, you're having to pull it from places that are volcanic, which is not where a lot of agricultural land is. And B, it's hard, which means I assume it takes a lot of energy to crush it to a usable form. So help me understand the energy demand of creating the product that you're selling and the transportation and distribution challenges therein. And how does that factor into the the overall carbon accounting of the product? Brilliant. Great question, Cody. Like this, like when I was deciding if this is something that I could actually help scale, that was the question I spent like literally months on. So a few different things there. One, it's not just in Hawaii and Iceland. I know I said that because, you know, it helps people, you start visualize it. But the cool thing is just like Adam was talking about at the start where, you know, continents have moved around and crazy shit has like uplifted over time. There's volcanic rock in America. You know, the most obvious one is the Pacific Northwest. You know, we've got Mount St. Helens there. There's actually a ton of basalt over in the Midwest, like up near Michigan, near Wisconsin, et cetera. There's basalt actually in the Northeast and the South. Like we found basalt in a bunch of places. And so our team currently has found like over 200 million tons of stockpiled waste basalt. So I want to double click on that. It's not just basalt that has to be mined, that's surficial. We've actually done a geological study of that. And we found that on average, the average American farm is only 183 miles from a surficial basalt deposit. So we like, you know, we checked that, that it exists and that it's close to agricultural land. But today, there's actually mines across America they are mining basalt for use in aggregate and construction and concrete and the like. And in a lot of states, you're required by law to wash the dust off of that product. And it creates these massive stockpiles. Like I've gone to these stockpiles and walked on top of them. They're literally millions of tons. It looks like you're in like the desert. There's like literally a stockpile of dust that nobody's using. And they often even pay landfills to take that off their hands. So in some ways, you're actually alleviating an environmental burden you know, you're alleviating the fact that this is taking up a bunch of space on a site and we're getting rid of that in a circular economy. So at the moment, Cody, like I've not spent any money or energy crushing up more basalt rock. I've not spent any energy mining new basalt rock. We are focused on using down that few hundred million tons of stockpiled waste product, making sure that it's safe, making sure in some cases we've gone, you know, like certified organic, making sure it's good for farmers and then getting that stuff to the field. So then it becomes a transport cost. And that, I mean, I'm sure Adam knows this as well. This is like the pain in our butts. Like that's hard. So like most of our costs are eaten up by transport today. We're working on making that more efficient by using railroads and bulk transport. But that's really, when push comes to shove, that's the biggest problem here. You know, folks are actually transporting, I think it's like maybe like 30 million tons of limestone or something like this. Every year, I think I've read this somewhere. That's great. We need to like swap that out with the salt, in my opinion. So it's kind of what, in some ways a solved problem. You know, everyone in America is trying to transport things cheaper. Now we are like, you know, early to the market. We're trying to transport a different rock dust cheaper. 
that we believe it should be better. But would love to hear Adam's thoughts as well. I agree that the transportation part is both from a cash cost and from a carbon cost perspective, the highest. I spent a lot of time working on the, the carbon budget of the extraction and the, and the processing part. Call it intellectual curiosity if we're going to take this to scale. You know, we have to imagine that we're going to grind up some rocks, you know. And in the end, it turns out that even though we might be using diesel power and even though we might be using a grid that might be in the realm of like 0.45 kilograms, like middle of the pack emissions per kilowatt hour, that all of that kind of extraction and processing ends up offsetting the carbon removal by a relatively small amount. And I know some of the early work here was precisely around like, gosh, in order to get the surface area, you have to make it smaller. And as Mary pointed out, there's a lot of fines around that are already small. But even in the case where as a society, let's picture to pay down that trillion tons that are in the atmosphere, we're going to be doing this, I would say, for a few generations. And, you know, there's enough rock in the world to offset 700 years of business as usual emissions. So that's, you know, long past peak oil and whatnot. But I want you to picture that this is going to be ubiquitous. And as we start to imagine that scale, certainly the processing step doesn't offset it. And what's more, even at this outset, I feel a little bit sheepish about saying this, but we can use fossil fuel to do it. And we're not displacing the deployment of renewables that I think is important for bringing, you know, the energy production into uh, net zero itself. Yeah. So actually just to double click on that. Likewise, Adam, we should collaborate more because we also did like a similar study where we sort of modeled out what it would look like to do a break even where you're spending way too much energy crushing up the rock to a small particle size that like this is not working for the carbon capture. In some states, it's like so efficient, you know, like Washington is hydropowered. We calculate in Washington, you're going to have to grind up the rock to 0.00001. That's literally the number I have on my screen. That's much smaller than the blood cell. So, you know, we're okay. We don't need dust that small, right? And it would still be before that point still, you know, doing more good than harm. So it's different depending on the energy grid of every single state. But like Adam said, think big picture here, we need to take down that, that debt that we've accrued as a society. And this is actually one of the most scalable ways of doing it. When you compare us to like DAC, which needs to like create photovoltaics and create solar power or like, you know, burn waste and stuff to power the stuff that they're doing with direct air capture, this is actually far more scalable. So I think, I guess it looks like Adam and us, we have both done calculations, like this actually could scale. And I think what we're getting into here is that in order to make the biggest impact possible, when you look at these life cycle assessments, we need to get really deep into the weeds of efficiency and the economics of this, right? One, it needs to like not cost more than is feasible. Like ideally it doesn't cost more than DAC, which it doesn't for us today, cost about a fifth of the price. And second, you have to make this process really efficient. There are some teams out there that are applying a lot of dust to fields and it's not reacting. So then you've spent money transporting that, you're spending money on your MRV, you're maybe freaking out a few farmers and it's not reacting for like 15 years to 50 years. That's where I think Adam and I are probably both double clicking on. We need to make sure that the weathering is actually happening. We need to make sure that it's actually happening at a rate that matters and that we're being accountable for that. So we're not just spending money in emissions, dumping rock dust in fields, 
without knowing what is happening. Going back to the baking metaphor. Yeah. So Mary, you set me up for my next question, which is we've talked now about the inputs. Let's talk about the actual outputs here. My understanding back to the the process that you're trying to replicate from nature is you're putting this basalt dust on these fields. It is getting absorbed into the soil and the actual sequestration happens either by absorption into plant roots or by going all the way down into the ocean and becoming part of the carbon cycle. And so I don't know if that's the correct statement, but two things. One, on soil carbon sequestration, I know, you know, regenerative ag and all of that is pretty far along at this point, but there still aren't a lot of CDR buyers, carbon dioxide removal buyers for soil sequestration yet, just because the ability to measure it is still quite immature. It's still being worked out. So you're going beyond in the soil and needing to measure outputs all the way down to how is this getting into the ocean and reacting at the bottom of the ocean? Like how in the world is this measured and verified? I mean, it's worth setting up the contrast with soil organic carbon better. I think everybody agrees that more soil carbon is good and, you know, no-till cover crops, even just from a soil conservation erosion reduction perspective are better. But having, you know, worked on experiments at UC Davis and such places, you can find a field that was managed identically 20 yards away that has radically different soil carbon. And you can measure that difference per plot. You can measure it per month, per year. In other words, it's not simply that the measurements are like, I wish we had more accurate measurements. It's super dynamic, can go up or down, and the models don't really work. And this is something that you know, Mary pointed out that the weathering rates are unpredictable, but fundamentally this goes in one direction. Like thermodynamics means that this is going to dissolve and it's not going to reform a crystal. And so a farmer is left holding the bag of risk of signing a contract to say, I'm going to deliver a ton in the next five years. And I would not sign that contract because it's so fundamentally hard to predict or a measurement might not speak to what the real you know carbon sequestration was and so it's not reliable and that's why you know on the one hand there's adam that's for soil sequestration just to be clear soil organic carbon yeah okay and so you find less than one percent of farmers have signed up for one of the legacy soil carbon programs. And even then on a fraction of their land, the Farm Bureau doesn't recommend you join a soil carbon program. And ultimately they look a lot like acquisition of customers into legacy data programs more than they look like carbon removal programs. And I think when you're talking about this mineral carbon removal, it's a little bit more predictable as far as the carbon piece. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think of this from a farmer perspective as well. So Adam just covered, you know, like the science of this, which was fantastic. But when you think about this from a farmer perspective, there's a few issues and it comes down to the economics of this. One, we work with a ton of farmers actually no-till because it's helpful to prevent erosion, which again, I'm very scared about. We're losing topsoil 10 times faster than we're regenerating it. That's going to become an issue, y'all. But yeah, 
farmers today, they already often no-till for general practices. But if you're trying to ask a farmer to do this for carbon crediting accounting purposes, that gets really hairy really fast. So one, as Adam might have mentioned, you know, this stuff is reversible. So when a hurricane rips through that field that my farmer has just spent so much time and money putting limestone on and no-tilling, you know, to try to keep the carbon deep in the soil. Oops, I think it's night where Adam is. <laughs> uh, it's like time to go to sleep. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so when, when a hurricane rips through that no-till farm, that carbon can just come out of the soil. And so how does a buyer, how does a buyer get behind that and pay top dollar for that? Like they really, really can't. And that way, soil organic carbon is not very fungible. In fact, it was just canceled by Canada. In Canada, you are no longer able or allowed to buy no-till soil organic carbon credits, right? On the other hand, our stuff is not really reversible. It's bicarbonate. There's some leakage that can happen in the rivers, which is actually a really key part of the MRV that we do on our team today. However, it's much, much more valuable. And so when you're telling a farmer, don't till, this is good for your land, we can maybe pay you like $10 every few years, it's a big risk for them. They don't know about that. They don't know about the reversibility. And also like, if you don't till, sometimes you grow a lot of weeds. And so it's like a new practice change. On the other hand, with the rock dust, it's a rock dust that subs for a more expensive product. So when we get into, you know, really understanding, as you asked Cody, how to measure this, it's completely different from soil organic carbon to what we do, which is akin to direct air capture in terms of the quality of the carbon. So with soil organic carbon, they often do models because it's too expensive to try empirically measure this when it's reversible and people won't pay top dollar. Basic economics incentives problem. For us, we're doing something that is permanent, durable, and for that reason, you know, much, much more valuable for the farmers and for buyers. And so what our team does is we do a few different steps of the process, and there's different ways of doing this. I think the lowest quality method, which neither Adam nor our team does, is, you know, there are teams that just like, not teams, so there are research groups that are just figuring out, like, can we just only model this? Can we just guess how much carbon is going to be sequestered by basalt or by olivine or by these other rocks? And I don't think that's the best approach to lay a good groundwork for the market. You know, if it's just a model, you make what you measure. Like, how can we be sure this has worked? And when we've done it in our research settings, we found that you might think you're capturing this much carbon, but because soil is so complex, it happens over 15 years or it doesn't happen at all. Or in the worst case, you cause reverse silicate weathering, which causes CO2 to off gas from the field after dumping on the basalt. That's just ridiculous. That's absurd. Nobody wants that. And so you really need, you make what you measure, you really need to measure it. So there's a few different approaches and I'll sort of give the lay of the land for the starting part of MRV. Some folks can do things with lysimeters or waters. There are different problems where lysimeters and waters are like immediate snapshots of what's happening in the field, you know? And often if you take a water type reading at 10 a.m. versus 10 p.m., you get completely different readings because different things are coming into the water flows at different times. You know, I studied hydrology. There's like fluid dynamics. That's just like a basic sort of way of doing that. So you're going to have to get into some statistical analysis to understand what's happening. At our team, we do a soil-based approach. My co-founder, Noah, who's a professor at Yale, but also a family farmer, like he still runs the family farm today. He knows that farmers actually soil sample almost every year in order to understand what's going on in their fields. And so we just get them to send us another one of the soil samples we run an isotopic spike cocktail on that. We're able to measure with less than 0.5% error on each element in the basalt and the background soils, how much carbon is being captured, you know, in an integrated way, not just like at a snapshot, but integrated and with really high accuracy. So that's how our team gets at the high level amount of carbon that's initially converted to the bicarbonate and sequestered. And then we do a whole cradle to grave approach that tracks it through rivers, the ocean, et cetera. But I will, I will pause there. 
Adam, any comments on on your approach with with MRV? I would say broadly consistent. Some differences in the the soil chemistry, and yet you know this idea of it's easier to measure stocks than fluxes has been a kind of key theme. Some of the people that have been like trying with difficulty to develop MRV approaches have been trying to look at the concentration of the efflux. And fundamentally, you will get shot if you start spending time around tile drains measuring the water. But more importantly, the subsurface flow is quite complicated. So sorry, is this just to make sure I understand, is this trying to measure the change in chemistry in the in the water table, essentially, in groundwater? Is that what you're is that what you're talking about? I'm gonna make an analogy. So let's say there's a couple ways to figure out vehicular CO2 emissions. On the one hand, you could just send me your gas station receipts from the last year. And to a first approximation, I'm going to have a really good sense of how much CO2 was emitted from your car. The expensive way is the California Air Resources Board has a really complicated CO2 monitoring system for the tailpipe to know exactly the speciation between the CO2, the carbon monoxide, et cetera. But you know as a driver intuitively, gosh, it's easier to know you know, how big is the gas tank and how full is the gas tank to know how much of that rock was put on and how much of that rock has dissolved and left. And there's a bunch of checks that, you know, Mary described, like, let's look at the downstream river chemistry to see are there conditions that would lead to the CO2 leaving. But this is very similar to the systems that are in place for even the federal government's MRV approaches for carbon capture and storage, which is on the one hand, you know, measuring the the process that is capturing and injecting, and on the other hand, modeling the hell out of all of the ways that that carbon dioxide could leak back out of that permanent geological storage. And so by leveraging the cognitive infrastructure that's in place around like really good supply chains to know how much of that rock went on, what its composition was, how much is left, this is gets you to a level of precision that is enviable within the carbon removal industry. Let's, you know, since obviously the whole reason for doing MRV is to be able to sell some form of carbon credit reliably, we haven't talked about either of your companies in detail or your business models. So maybe each of you just describe a bit about Lithos and Ion in particular, as well as the business model you plan to pursue both with respect to selling the input to farmers, as well as the credit that you expect to be able to monetize. You are such a capitalist. I knew you were going to start asking business questions after all that chemistry. You know, I I don't think either of us will say very much that's different. Stripe, Microsoft, Shopify started, oh, I don't know, about five years ago, thinking about what constitutes high quality carbon removal, because so much of the world was littered with, you know, poor governance, lack of oversight, essentially 
using marketing dollars to, you know, highlight offsets that were purchasing were being purchased, but robbing the atmosphere of the actual carbon that was promised. And people started looking at, you know, what constitutes high quality carbon removal. Permanence shows up high in the list, verifiability. Can this scale to reach, you know, an affordable price? Does this displace arable land? You might think this is a funny question, but if we're deploying solar panels, you know, you can't generally practice agriculture. Or if we're reducing yields, you know, that may displace agriculture into places where it drives deforestation. So this is like leakage in the context of... so. That sort of process of identifying high quality carbon identified this kind of premium category that achieves higher dollar prices now than historically the voluntary carbon markets have made. So that's sort of where the carbon buyers are. But I know from the kind of soil organic carbon programs that even if you're a well-funded startup with you know, north of a billion dollars and you are well able to sell the carbon credits, it doesn't mean the farmers want to participate. And so this is a solution that ultimately wins on the acre or dies on the acre. And so this interaction with the farmer and making sure that the economics work for them is where this survives. And you might immediately think like, how much are we paying the farmer? But you know, as Mary pointed out, they're farming to farm. They're farming to produce crops and sell them. This sort of marginal gain attached to carbon is relatively small and too risky for them. And so the gains ultimately that have to be delivered to the farmer are agronomic. You know, so we're talking about, you know, what is the yield lift? What are the other nutrient efficiencies that can be gained? How does this fit logistically? within their other operations? Can you cut out an operation? What not? And so in different parts of the country, different crops, you might find different value propositions that shape what the kind of price of the offering is. But ultimately, that is where kind of all the business model innovation and a lot of the fun is in starting the business. Once you get the chemistry, you realize like, okay, the rock's going to dissolve. It's inevitable. What's the next part? And here I find that there's endless variation in the business model kind of iteration that are possible in frankly creating alignments with other entities in the ag industry that are really exciting. Awesome. So, I mean, I think taking a step back a little bit, so Cody, you asked, you know, like, what's the business model? Like, you know, how does this scale? Like, what are, how are you thinking about credits? All great questions. I think taking a step back, the question we really need to focus on is scale, right? Like, so like, I think Adam and I sit in a different place where it's not like a fintech company, you know, like it's great to make profits. Obviously we're all trying to make profits so that, you know, the company can keep going. But the key question here is how do you get this to a scale that matters? To date, the companies that have captured the most carbon in the world, you know, Triumph, Climeworks, wonderful teams, you know, they're at 5,000 tons. And that is awesome. Like I am inspired by that. They were first movers, but we need to get some even more. All of us are running after a billion tons. So how do we do that? How do we really reimagine an agronomic system that can get us to a billion tons? That's really freaking scary, right? Like there are more than a billion people on Facebook. There are playbooks for so many other things when it comes to tech, which is, you know, your background as well, Cody, at Techstars. 
how do we get to a billion tons of capture? This is moving atoms, not bits. And that's, that's hard. So how we approach it from Lithos is like, what can we do as a company with the technology we've developed, with the promises we can make to farmers, to the way we can make these economic incentives work on the farm? And then how do we pair this with the right players to get to a freaking billion tons? Not like in a hundred years when things are really hot, but like within the decade. And so those are the questions I'm going to try to answer for you. I think one, exactly what Adam said, like we have to care about the farmers. Like these are the people that are deploying the stuff in their land. If we're trying to like get in a helicopter and spread this on a forest, fine. We don't need to care about farmers, but that's not the most efficient way. There's already, you know, trillions of dollars of infrastructure in agricultural settings. These farmers are spreading limestone. They can do this. We just need to make sure that this is something they want to do. So going back to the Tesla model analogy, building something that they want ignore the climate stuff. For now, we solve climate change as a side effect. And so how we think about that is like, you know, for my team, like my family are all smallholder vegetable farmers in the highlands of Taiwan, you know, like they struggle with this kind of stuff. So like, I understand how hard it is to make margins work. Same thing with Noah, still co-runs the family farm today. So what we come down to is like, we need to be able to guarantee to farmers that this can completely replace the limestone on their fields, at the moment, we can give it to them to, for free because the carbon credit pays for that. It's almost like non-dilutive funding for the sustainability program or something, right? If we can replace the limestone, reduce the limestone impact, suck carbon out of the atmosphere, have these agronomic benefits, that's the key thing. If we cannot do that, then nobody who's doing enhanced weathering in agricultural settings will succeed. And the good thing is that the research right now is positive. So we are seeing in our trials anything from 5% to 47% crop yield improvements, which sounds kind of like crazy statistical error. It's not. It's because soil types are different. It's because two farmers within five miles of each other, totally different organic practices, totally different crop types, totally different soils from a few hundred years, totally different things. And so what we are building partially is actually a machine learning based model that takes in all the data from each acre of land that we deploy on, takes in that stuff about the crop yield inputs and you know the crop yield improvements that we generate and helps us understand where the most efficient places for agronomic benefits for farmers, as well as the carbon capture rates that we are verifying with our high quality MRV. So that's one thing, you know, being accountable to farmers, answering their questions, because that is out of the gate, the first hurdle you're going to need to clear. The second hurdle is, you know, economically making this feasible. And I'm actually really curious, like this is a really exciting conversation for me because I'm curious what, you know, other players in the enhanced weathering space are doing. How we approach it in terms of ethos is like, we're not land grabby. Like we do not feel like we need to own the truck that moves the basalt. Like if someone else wants to do that, that's actually fantastic. And in fact, just to take a step back, I found out recently that in Malaysia, which is where the other half of my family is from, the government is funding research into using basalt to rehabilitate soil so you can grow in places you can never grow. All right, so if people wanna move around basalt because it's good for farms, that's great. We would love to figure out how to optimize that for carbon capture, make sure that this is additional and help plug into other players who are interested in this carbon capture space. So on our team, like we would really love to continue doubling down on our MRV approach continue doubling down at that optimization software that enables us to guarantee to farmers that their crop yields will be the same or, or better. Double down on those two things. And we currently are working on licensing out our tech to some folks in other countries who are deploying basalt to capture carbon, but don't know how to do it and don't know how to measure it. So that's part of our business model today. Like we really would love to build a community of agricultural retailers, of awesome people like Adam and other folks who are you know, doing enhanced weathering, helping the entire community be really open, rigorous, and transparent. So we don't get canceled, like no till, that would be a little bit of a disaster, like just, you know, kill this upfront, right? Like we don't want that. 
So we're really focused on openness, transparency, trying to make something that works for farmers, and then scaling throughout any partnership channels that we can. At the moment, we are working with a bunch of our own live farmers today across you know, the Midwest, Northeast, Southeast. That's really exciting for us. Like We're proving that out on a small scale, but really to get to scale, if we want to make a dent, we're going to need to do things beyond just us. But that's our perspective on things, having to talk more about you know, actually unit economics or other business model things, but high level wanting to like convey that scale is all that matters when it comes to carbon capture. It's no fun to just do this for research. I mean, it is actually really fun, but it's not what matters. And how far off do you think we are from a, a verifiable methodology that can reliably sell carbon capture through enhanced rock weathering at a relatively sim, you know, set price point or predictable price point? We can both testify that it's a past tense question. Like the verification methodologies exist and they're in the process of publication. Yeah. So, I mean, both of our, our teams have sold our carbon credits. Like our team sold carbon credits to the Frontier Climate Fund, which is, you know, backed by Meta and McKinsey and Stripe and Shopify and, and, and Alphabet, right? So we both have sold carbon credits. That's really exciting. But what you're getting at with the methodology, you know, like a third party verifier, which we're fully supportive of, I think that's coming down the pipeline. So one, you know, we're going to publish everything that we do. That's so important for us. Like two of my co-founding team, they're professors. That's literally what we do, right? So openness, rigor, and transparency, super important for developing these methodologies. But actually, there are other players in the space, third parties, that who are seeking to verify this today. So I mean, I think Vera just announced like a few weeks ago that they want to develop a methodology for enhanced weathering. It might take a while, but this stuff is coming down the pipeline. I think will, you know, really help with making sure that there's like sort of a consistent approach across the field. Like we can all do this in different ways, but there has to be like a level, a standard of rigor in terms of making sure this is not what's happening with no-till, for example. And that's happening already. I think one of the, the important parts where we're both very aligned is making sure that the methodologies and approaches are rigorous. And so they don't end up being diluted and ultimately souring people on what the potential is because i mean agriculture is littered with ag tech promises that have failed to deliver that which was promised i mean you know jack was sold as magic beans you know but if we think about cdr as well there's a wonderful diversity of different approaches to carbon removal and yet i think we are as a if we can call it an industry aware that, you know, the minute any one of us sells like poorly verified credits, it's going to look bad on all of us. Like there's cynics who are waiting to see, ah, you know, I, I knew it was a scam, you know. And so being able to have a collectively high bar to meet as far as rigor is good. And we both are kind of lucky that we're talking about things that show up in trucks. This is like solved problem, you know, tamper seals on a truck. You know, that was probably a hundred year old invention that can be leveraged here. Well, Adam and Mary, I, I appreciate both of you, you know, sort of mentioning the spirit of collaboration in each of your final remarks there. And that just goes to show how, how eager you both were to come on here, talk about your companies that are approaching similar spaces, you know, openly and together Really appreciate you walking all of us through the chemistry, the natural processes in which you are building, that you're using as a foundation to build your businesses, and also how you see the space evolving. 
What didn't I ask? Anything I should have asked about or, or pressed on that you think is important for people to hear to understand the problem that you're going after? I mean, you, you called it my climate journey and you didn't ask anything like what brought us <laughs> to the moment where we founded these companies. That is true. Usually we spend more time on the bios. I think we spent so much time on the chemistry, we didn't get there, but would love to hear that from each of you if you want to share uh, uh, briefly about your own journeys. I, mean, I want to hear about all holders in Taiwan as incredible, but I, I'd be in, in Venus, but I'd be curious to hear what brought you here, Mary. Yeah, for sure. Likewise, Adam, would love to hear your journey. I've come from a pretty non-traditional background, but at the same time, like, you know, I think we actually all have with climate. It's like a, it's a very new field. My background was I worked in consumer tech for about over half a decade before coming into climate. I've always been a nature junkie. Like I grew up like in the fields growing like, you know, freaking sweet peas and stuff. I'm still a big scuba diver today. Like I love wildlife photography. Like nature is like the biggest source of wonder in the world. And that's like kind of why we're around, right? And so I worked in consumer tech ever since I was 18. I originally like studied like plant biology in the Midwest at the University of Chicago, dropped out, worked in early stage companies, consumer tech for fintech. So, you know, it's really, really great to build things when you're 18 that millions of people and dozens of countries use. That's thrilling. It's very, very addicting. But in 2016, I went through like a personal crisis. A couple of close friends passed away in like freak accidents, really like freaking made me realize, like it made me really confront that survival is not guaranteed for us as individuals or as a society. And that was like a really, like it just sharpens everything, you know, when you get hit by something like that. And so I made this choice to step away from a career that I really loved, a team that I absolutely loved and had helped build took some time, traveled back to Southeast Asia, where my family lives and where some of them are farmers, thought about the fact that the freaking rice patties cannot grow rice. That like really freaked me out, guys. Like really seeing that, very, very scary. Visited cities where my father lives and was like, oh my God, like my dad is saying that this is 20 degrees hotter than it was in his childhood in Malaysia. That is like not okay. Like, and if I'm gonna get hit by a bus in two years, like I wanna be working on the one problem that I can work on for the rest of my life, you know? And for me, it was just so clear in that moment what that that problem was. So I went back to school at Yale, studied geology and planetary sciences, learned about hydrology, Venus, all the stuff we talked about today. I met my co-founders who had been working on this technology for, you know, the better part of a decade. And they're so committed to this. Like they literally, they mess with ocean alkalinity, like all the different things, stack, try to figure out what they thought was the most scalable. And I'm just so lucky that I got to join them on their climate journeys as well and help bring this research into a commercial setting where we actually hope to get the scale. So that's in a nutshell how I got to this. You know, like my family are farmers in Taiwan. Like it, it really hits home and we are not robots, at least not yet. We all need to eat and we all need to get rid of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So in some ways it's a really beautiful solution that brings home two of the problems that humanity is gonna have to face or else we're gonna go down. Mary, I, I super appreciate you sharing your story. And I'm sorry that obviously you had some personal tragedies, but I'm also grateful that it brought you to helping to build this solution today. And it's interesting to hear you position enhanced rock weathering a little bit as you know, both a mitigation and an adaptation solution in terms of its applicability to agriculture and helping farmers, you know, continue to grow food in the changing climate that we have, which hopefully, you know, your solution could be one of the tools in the toolkit that helps mitigate, but that, you know, we also obviously need to keep feeding the earth, which is projected to grow to, you know, 10 billion humans over the next couple, over the next couple decades. Exactly. Precisely. Adam, love to hear your story. 
I mean, there's a, a bunch of parts of Mary's story that resonated, but I went to college to study agricultural science. And, you know, I, I started to be a beer brewer in the fermentation science program at UC Davis, but ended up falling in love with agriculture. Like you can understand everything through the lens of agriculture. You can understand law, you can understand politics, genetics, soils, you know, you name it. And so as a wayward teen, I felt like, oh, now, now I'm starting to understand how the world works. And in particular, had this kind of grasp that the environment is agriculture. It's managed lands and humans are in charge of the environment. Stuart Brand has this line that we are as gods, so we may as well get good at it. You know, we're managing all these lands. And so I, you know, worked for the farm advisor. I did a little work as a crop consultant. I ended up, my path was the academic one. So I ended up going to the Republic of Kazakhstan, actually, for my master's research. And this is like my first intersection with carbon world. It's around 1999. And the USDA had a funny program to use carbon credits as a way to support development. And like disregarding the irony that Kazakhstan's a major oil producer, you had all this abandoned land. Gosh, I wonder if we can pay people to keep that carbon under wraps, but it takes a whiff of a change in commodity prices and farmers are going to put that land back into production. And so already I've got this idea that, you know, it's pretty transient, paid for my grad school, but I ended up following this path that took me to Stanford. I was doing all this kind of work, turning plants into numbers, really like all the climate models have kind of some representation of how plants work. And I found it so ironic in 2008, my thesis advisor, Chris Field, he got to sit next to the King of Sweden because they got the Nobel Peace Prize for the IPCC. And yet that very same year, business as usual emissions, like actual emissions exceeded like the fossil intensive scenario that was in the IPCC. And like, this is my first sense as an academic that we're not going to publish our way out of this, you know, like there's no abundance of information that's actually going to solve this. And, you know, at this moment, this was, it was funny. It was like Stanford had the very first class on how to program an iPhone and we we're getting the sense of like, oh yeah, smartphones, apps, IOT. I taught myself how to make circuit boards. I started a company around like agricultural decisions based on local information because that an optimism that, oh, if, if people had the right information, they'd make the right decisions. But ultimately, I wouldn't delegate my thinking to an app developed a thousand miles away. Why would a farmer? And, you know, I think there's a lot of value in data and agriculture. There's, there's too little of it. But ultimately, you know, what drives behavior change is slow and it's, it's kind of intergenerational. And really when I started to see kind of my squeamishness about the new generation of carbon programs in agriculture, red soil organic carbon, while at the same time realizing this opportunity presented by permanent mineral carbon sequestration, 
it felt like, oh, this is something that requires no practice change. And, you know, the offering to the farmer is 100% aligned with their existing practice. And yet it solves the problem it was set out to do. And, you know, the digital component is all, you know, that's consumed by the likes of Stripe and others who, you know, want to look at digital data. The farmer is like, don't show me the app again. So this, I think, is really exciting as an opportunity to make a product that actually fully solves the problem, you know, which as a product designer is the holy grail is like, can I actually solve the problem and not just tell people they have a problem, not just benchmark the problem, not just diligence the problem, but like, I feel so satisfied that I'm solving the problem. And when we solve the problem, on the one hand, it's carbon, but on the other hand, there's, you know, real problems in rural America as far as like being pinched on margins. And it feels really good to be able to deliver a win, you know, delivering economic opportunities to rural areas. So I feel lucky that I I landed here. Well, Adam and Mary, I so appreciate you both coming on. And, you know, for folks who are listening, obviously, again, two different founders and CEOs of two different companies. So Mary Yap with Lithos Carbon and Adam Wolf with Ion Carbon that is spelled E-I-O-N. And so I'm sure they would, you know, both love you to check out their websites and and dive into what they're doing. And hopefully they've inspired some folks to learn more about this space and and join them in their their collaborative efforts as it continues to evolve. Mary, Adam, thank you both very much. Thanks so much for having us. It was great. Good to meet you, Adam. Good to meet you, Mary. Thanks, Cody, for bringing us together. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey... You can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.